Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting July 30th, 2008. I'm Steve Mursky. The June 18th podcast featured a conversation with IEEE Spectrum Editor-in-Chief Glenn Zorpet and writer John Horgan about the so-called technological singularity in which artificial intelligence and computing power would allegedly lead to a new era in human history. Well, after that conversation, we kept yapping, as, as is our habit. Glenn talked about his most recent trip to Iraq, and John shared an anthropological take on war in general. Our conversation took place at IEEE Spectrum's headquarters in New York City. Glenn, you've, uh, you, you spent almost the entire month of January in Iraq? I did do that. And this is not your first trip to Iraq? This was my second trip to Iraq. Right. And what were you, you're, you were there for technology reasons though. Yeah, I, um, on, shortly after my first trip, I got interested in the idea of IEDs. When you're in Iraq, you get interested in IEDs. Um, improvised explosive Improvised devices. explosive devices, which is a kind of a catch-all term that refers to roadside bombs, suicide bombs, and car bombs. And uh, so I knew, I became aware, I knew that there was a lot of work going on. The first time I was there was September and October of 2005. And I, and I realized that there was a lot going on. It was starting to get underway then, uh, tech, various high technologies and other technologies being applied to try to deal with IEDs. And since then, in particular, it's become this very large enterprise. There's an organization called the Joint IED Defeat Organization in the Pentagon and the U.S. military which oversees research into counter IED and um, in particular technology and technology related research uh, into counter IED and they're spending several billion dollars a year at this point um, and there's uh, and this operation has got to be fairly new because IEDs were not anticipated right well in the most current set of conflicts because the northern Ireland conflict in the Starting in the early 70s, basically, IEDs, although we didn't call them IEDs then, mm -hmm. but IEDs were, were a major part of that conflict. In, in 1971 or 72, there were 1,400 IED detonations in one year in that conflict. But in terms of the modern IED situation, it, it actually kind of got started in Afghanistan in late 2003, I believe, and then went to Iraq where it really kind of uh, took off. Um, the, at the height, they were seeing... The height they were seeing somewhere in the neighborhood of 3,000 IED incidents a month in Jesus. Iraq. I think that's down quite a bit to between 1,000 and 2,000 more recently. Exact numbers aren't released. A bad province in Iraq, a, a turbulent, convulsive province in Iraq, such as Salah Adin, might see 800 and something a month IED incidents. That could be an IED found. It could be an IED detonation. It's not necessarily a, a death. Um, I, I believe that in Iraq, slightly over half of all combat fatalities are IED caused. I think the figure for Afghanistan is 35 or percent or so, 30 or 35 percent. So I got interested in this idea, and I, I resolved to go back to try to um, learn more about it. It was quite difficult because, understandably and justifiably, it is among the most closely guarded and secretive things that's happening in this war. Basically, the, the insurgents, the militias, and others that use IEDs are phenomenally adept and aggressive at using the Internet and any other means they can to find out about counter-IED to refine and change their own tactics and the IEDs themselves 
to get around the, the, the means being used to try to counteract them. It's, it's an amazing, unbelievable cat and mouse game where you could see alterations to, to tactics or technology literally in a day or two. The, the things that you can talk about that you learned while you were there and you're preparing an article for your magazine. Correct. About, uh, are related to dealing with IEDs. Right. Yeah. There's the, the most common thing that people talk about or know about are, are the jammers. Every vehicle in Iraq now that goes out on the roads, every coalition vehicle, I think most of the Iraqi vehicles now have jammers. It's, there's a family of these jammers. There's a number of generations and those block the signals that are used to trigger what they call RC IEDs, radio controlled IEDs. And these are bombs basically are set off by cell phones or garage door openers or, or keyless entry things. There's all kinds of stuff. And so the, the vehicles all carry these jammers. And the insurgents, of course, quickly went back to using other things. T- typically, what they call command wire, which is a hardwired copper wires that just lead to a switch, typically a kilometer or so away. And also to pressure plates, what they call victim-operated IEDs. It's a pressure plate, crush wire, or something else, metal that's held apart by foam or something else, a wheel, a tire, or a foot touches it, completes the circuit, IED goes off. There are advantages and disadvantages to all these things. The command wires lead to the trigger man. So they've, they've, they're going to, the insurgents have lately, I mean, a lot of IEDs are now the latest countermeasure or one that I heard about when I was there was there'll be a command wire from the IED buried so it can't be seen. And that will be long enough so it's outside the bubble of protection provided by the jammer. And then at the end of that command wire is not a trigger man, but a cell phone or something. So the bomb can be detonated from very far away. So it's this is the way the game goes. They they make a change. You know, the 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 uh, adversary makes a change. The coalition responds to that, and it, and on it goes. But the, the IEDs are there are enormous variety of types and kinds. There's something called an explosively formed penetrator, which fires a, a molten mass at two thousand kilometers per second or more. Twice the velocity of high high velocity rifle round can penetrate armor. Um, tremendously lethal, many fatalities. There are the the insurgents now are, are often using, and even the militias are using homemade explosive, which the military calls UBE for unidentified bulk explosive, because basically they can get a lot of bang, literally for for the buck. They can create enormous explosions. I've I heard of IEDs that the 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 MRAP and the JIRV vehicles the MRAP is mine-resistant, ambush-protected. It's the successor to the Humvee. What's happening now is most of the Humvees are being given to the Iraqi army, and U.S. forces are traveling in these things called MRAPs. They're much more heavily armored. They're higher off the ground. They're designed to withstand larger blasts, and they weigh about 25 or 26 tons. But I have heard of IED blasts so large that they've flung MRAPs tens of meters, actually sent them spinning in the air and flung them say 40 or 50 or 60 meters just the, the it's it's hard it's amazing the, the explosive force that they can achieve so you have this little technological arms race between the uh the bombers and the bombies here and, right. and you also visit you visited a 
you know, in the old days there was the the motor pool. Now there's the the robot pool. Right. One one of the aspects of counter IED is called EOD, Explosives Ordnance Demolition, and these are specially trained men and women in all the branches of the service whose job it is to deal with IEDs when they're found because a convoy might be going down a road and they just come across an IED. Somebody spots it, there's some telltale sign, disturbed earth, or they see a glint of copper or something, that's an IED. So they stop, who do they call? They call an EOD team. And these EOD teams, um, they do a number of things, but two of their big responsibilities, one of them is called area response, and that's when they're on call, they get the call, there's an IED, and they have to go deal with it. And they also do something called route clearance, and I, and that means they travel up and down these roads themselves looking for IEDs, with, with uh, typically with Army teams. And I, I actually went on two route clearance missions when I was there, and we came across an IED We and on my second mission. that That actually what happened was, we were on the main supply route north-south through Iraq, which the coalition calls MSR Tampa, main supply route Tampa. And we got a call that they had found, a convoy had found an IED. So we showed up there to take care of it. And the way these teams typically take care of these IEDs is they have robots. There are two different models. There's one called a PackBot, but the one they seem to favor is called Talon. And they're... Uh, about the size of a shopping cart or so, a little sm- smaller, not quite that tall, and they have very sophisticated camera and manipulator system. They have a manipulator arm and a very sophisticated camera on it. And the camera can see in different spectral bands, visible, infrared, and so on. So what they do is they park their truck, the EOD teams travel in, in JIRVs, which is a, everything's an acronym. JIRV is Joint EOD Rapid Response Vehicle. And these things cost about three quarters of a million dollars before you put the tech, the, the fancy technology in. The high tech cameras, the jamming systems, you know, the communication systems, that probably, I'm sure that brings it up over two million. The optical systems that let them scrutinize stuff alone, called the gyrocam, that alone costs about half a million. Okay, so they they park, I don't know, maybe a few hundred meters away from the IED. The robot goes out the back of the JIRV, and a robot operator, just steering it, driving it in real time, using these cameras and things on it, just drives it to the IED. And they'll inspect it, they'll look at it, they'll see what they're dealing with um, to the extent they can. There's a lot of intelligence that goes on in, uh, with IEDs. There's a, an intelligence operation near the Baghdad airport. They study IEDs there. They they carefully categorize where did it come from, when did they get it. They can even, I believe, or I've I've heard that they can even get an idea of who made it, who the, who the bomb maker was. They can start to see signatures, the kind of triggering mechanism he favors. Um, the kind of explosive, where they can get ideas about where the explosive was probably made. They do an enormous amount of forensic work, basically. But when they come across one of these IEDs, they'll either try to disable it, if they can get a feel a bead on how it works, the triggering mechanism and so on, they'll disable it and bring it back for further study. Or they'll, if it's nothing interesting, if it's a, just a garden variety IED they've seen before, or they can't, or they're nervous about whether they can uh, neutralize it, they'll just blow it up. So the robot in that case would come back, uh, it would bring the IED back if they were going to preserve it, or if they're just going to blow it up in place, they'd bring the robot back, they'd 
put uh, blocks of of, uh, of a military explosive like C4, one or two blocks, put it in the robot's claw. The robot goes back. They place that and they detonate it from in the say within the the jerv with a relatively safe uh, environment inside the jerv. There are these teams that do that. That's their job. I mean, they're these young men and women. You know, they're in their early twenties, some of them, and they've been trained to do these robots. Uh, they come from all the branches of the service, and that's their job to you know wake up and find these IEDs and blow them up with these robots. Do you know how many robots are out there uh, taking care of IEDs right now? When I was there in January, there were eighteen hundred robots in theater in Iraq, I believe. There are more in Afghanistan, but there the number was rapidly increasing. And I was told that by the end of of this year, this year being two thousand eight, there'll be at least another two, another thousand. So by the end of this year, there's supposed to be you know close to three thousand of these EOD robots in theater. And your article about this is going to come out in IEEE Spectrum in correct. Yeah, I'm doing two articles actually. I'm doing a, an article, an overview of counter IED, and and the 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 question I'm trying to answer with this article is, can we really render IEDs obsolete? And it's not really an, an academic question because there are many IED incidents and detonations in the world every month outside of Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, I've seen figures that it's, it's, um, it's, it's well into the hundreds, well into the hundreds, if not thousands per month outside of Iraq and Afghanistan. In other words, in places like Pakistan, Chechnya, South America, a lot of that's linked to the, the drug trade, the Philippines, Sri Lanka, Sri Lanka. I mean, all these places have India. There, there are IED incidents. I mean, these these are places that have large IED problems. Um, m- many military analysts, and not just government analysts or, or homeland security, not at all, but many, many analysts and national security types believe that we will see IEDs. Well, we've already seen them in Europe, on, on a uh, you know, in places like Spain and the UK and, and elsewhere, but. The, there's a feeling among many people that we'll see them in more in, in developed countries, including the United States. In a way, it's I don't want to call it a race against time, but it, it's not hard to make the case that we really need to to find a way to deal with IEDs. You know, there, there's this sense that I get that it's it's not going to be any one thing. I mean, I think no one thinks anymore that there's a silver bullet technology. I mean, you used to hear this kind of thing. Well, you know, terahertz waves. You know, they'll let us see it and disable. You know, no, there's no one thing. There's going to be dozens, maybe hundreds of technologies that are brought to bear on this, and hopefully they will coalesce into something that really effectively deals with this threat, because it isn't going away, I don't think. I am a huge admirer of the reporting he's done from Iraq. I mean, it takes a lot of courage just to go there, and uh, he produced a great article three years ago, two years ago, on um, rebuilding the Iraq power grid and what a nightmare that had become. Great work. Uh, done by this um, this old colleague of mine. At risk of turning this into a mutual admiration society, when John and I were, were younger, when we used to argue about politics, and this is how old this was, we were arguing about the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. <laughs> yeah. So we, this is, we're, we're kind of old. This but, goes way back. So, but John and I would have these hilarious, half-drunken arguments. And what... Th- John inspired me in many ways because I was, I had just gotten into journalism. He'd been to Columbia Journalism School. He was this grizzled figure and, you know, and he was a mentor, really. And, uh, it, you know, he's the reason why 
I got so excited in, in, in about science and technology journalism and decided that this was going to be my, my life's work, really. But one of the things he did that impressed me and that always stuck with me is that he went to Nicaragua. He took a month's vacation and went down there and got dysentery and stuff. But <laughs> I thought... Yeah, you know, if you're going to argue about something or you want to know about something, go down there, see it. Don't, you know, don't don't read other people's stuff. So that's why I went. Let me just follow up on your most recent trip to Iraq. Did you do any follow-up reporting about the electrical grid the I did. situation? There? I did. I was there for about 4 weeks and I spent one of those weeks with the Army Corps of Engineers uh, and I went back to a couple of the sites I'd visited on my first trip, including the Kudus power plant, which is north of Baghdad, uh, it goes through some kind of dicey neighborhoods. So the trip from the green zone to Kudus is always a bit of a uh, heart charger. So um, we went up there in these Riva vehicles, these heavily armored South African Riva vehicles. And much to my amazement, I found that they had gotten some of the power plants started that they hadn't been able to run when I was there in 2005. And it was kind of one of these good news, bad news things because they had put in a lot of power plants, which we call combustion turbines, which require a certain kind of fuel and lots of it. And they were trying to run them on diesel fuel. They, the, the specific types they were put in are much more easily run on, on natural gas, but they didn't have a supply of natural gas. So they're running them, trying to run them on this diesel fuel. And there aren't they didn't have a, a pipeline supply or a ready supply of, of some of these other fuels they needed, so they basically had to truck it in. So as soon as we arrived at Kudus, I saw a line of tanker trucks. I would guess there were 50 or 60 of them, or 40 or 50 anyway, just snaking all around the, the inside of the perimeter, you know, gate, gated area of this plant. And that was, I was told, one day's supply of diesel fuel for one of the turbines that they had. And they have, when they're done, I believe they'll have eight or nine turbines. Not all of them are going to be run on diesel. They're, they're running some of them off this crude oil distillate that they get from a, literally across the street. Not enough to run all those other things, but, um, that was, uh, kind of a sobering reminder of how the planning for the reconstruction of the electrical sector just didn't take into account harsh realities. Is the diesel fuel at least Iraqi in origin? No, it's not. Most <laughs> of the diesel comes... The, the Iraqs, the Iraqs, within Iraq, there's very little domestic capability to refine petrochemicals. So I think there's one refinery in somewhere around Beji, but it, it's not nearly enough for their needs. So a lot of the diesel comes from Kuwait, or Turkey. I think a lot of it lately is coming from Kuwait. It has to be trucked in. It's it's expensive and quite dangerous to truck Boy, it. That's ironic, isn't it? <laughs> well, yeah, the, <laughs> the word irony does come to mind. So oh, what, what have you been working on, John? Yeah, well, you know, I think the last time I talked to you, it was almost a year ago, last time I talked to you for a Scientific American podcast, that is, and uh, I told you I was working on an article about um, the roots of warfare, and it would look at the question of whether uh, war and militarism are permanent parts of the human condition or whether we can um, eradicate them and uh, have this fade into human history finally at some point. And uh, that article finally was published in uh, April in Discover magazine. And it was only about 3,000 3, words. And I've got a tremendous amount of material. Obviously, it's a huge topic. I still am... Um, absurdly optimistic 
that we can get war behind us. One of the reasons I want to write uh, more about this topic is because most people I know, including Glenn, I'm not sure how you feel about this, Steve, uh, are absolute fatalists. Uh, my students at Stevens, I've actually asked people in Europe, all across the country, this question about whether they think war will always be with us. Uh, every chance I get, I, I put this question to people. And over 90% of their responses are that uh, war uh, will never end. And I just think that's a real misreading of um, of studies of the roots of war and uh, the biology of aggression. Uh, war, to me, is clearly, especially modern war, is a cultural phenomenon, and uh, we can get past it. In fact, international war, in spite of the uh, U.S. invasion of Iraq, is becoming very rare since World War II. Uh, this might be because of uh, an increase in the number of democracies. So democracies rarely, if ever, fight each other. They often fight non-democracies, uh, that's obvious, but they hardly ever fight each other, and there's been an increase in the number of democracies since World War II from about 20 to almost 100 today. So there are lots of positive trends out there. I'd like to tell people more about that so uh, they become less fatalistic because obviously the belief that war will never end becomes self-fulfilling. And um, I think we can get this behind us. So are you turning that article into a book? That's my hope. You're familiar with, I think it's Sam Bowes at uh, Santa Fe. He did a study, came out last fall in science, on the co-evolution of war and altruism. Interesting. Yeah, there's been, there have been a number of studies of uh, the uh, connection between war, altruism, uh, cooperation, and the paradox is that um, uh, within a society that is surrounded by enemies or very warlike warlike society, you get incredible cooperation that often leads to great technological advances and uh, a great level of sophisticated organization within that society that allows it to go and smash the hell out of other societies around it. Uh, so obviously, uh, militarism have led to some of the greatest advances in science and, and technology. And war and militarism have often... Have also been a civilizing factor in human history. That's another paradox. But I think we're at a point in history now where you can sort of look at the European Union as a model where you have all these very powerful nations that have realized that uh, war and militarism just made absolutely no sense anymore. And so they have created this set of treaties that acknowledge their interdependence and uh, make the, the possibility of, of you know, a repeat of World War One or Two extremely unlikely. My hope is that those kinds of alliances will gradually spread around the world and uh, war will become even less likely in the future. So what we really need is an off-world threat. We need the threat of extraterrestrials like in Independence Day. Or climate, you know, that's, that's something I hear very often. But you can also have a, a terrestrial global threat like climate change, which also uh, requires a lot of international cooperation. Just one more thing that I'd like to mention. One factor that comes up over and over again when I talk to scholars and scientists about war as something that can really reduce the risk of conflict is educating females. 
if you educate young women, particularly in developing countries, then you get a very strong correlation with a reduced birth rate, then you get a lower population, that's less of a strain on uh, the, the natural resources uh, and also the resources of, of government and uh, medicine, uh, much lower risk of conflict. So through that one thing, which also is the right thing to do for lots of other reasons, through that one thing, you can really do a lot to reduce the risk of war. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, a couple of species of animal have been found that purposefully seek out food containing alcohol. Story two, a new study shows that athletes taking human growth hormone, HGH, significantly improve performance. Story three, call it Map Crash Quest. Researchers have published a map of America's roads based on driving fatalities. And story four, erectile dysfunction drugs may eventually help fight human brain tumors. We'll be back with the answer, but first I want to tell you that last week I interviewed New York Times columnist Tom Friedman about his latest book, Hot, Flat, and Crowded. The book comes out in September, and we'll play the conversation then. In the meantime, you can read, or rather listen to, the audiobook of his previous bestseller, The World is Flat, free. Just go to Tom Friedman's website, www.thomaslfriedman.com, through August 10th, and sign up to receive a free audio download of The World is Flat audiobook, as well as an exclusive audio preview of the new book, Hot, Flat, and Crowded. Further terms and details are available at www.thomaslfriedman.com. And now back to the quiz. Story four is true. In a study with rats, erectile dysfunction drugs increased the levels of anti-cancer drugs that were able to reach malignant brain tumors. Getting such drugs to tumors can sometimes be a challenge. The work appeared in the journal Brain Research. Story two is true. Go to www.saferoadmaps.org, type in your address, and you can see the safety record of the roads you drive every day. The map was created at the University of Minnesota. And story one is true. Two species living in Malaysia were found to imbibe the equivalent of nine drinks every night. They fed on the alcoholic nectar of a local palm tree. One of the animals is the slow loris, which makes sense. For more, check out the July 29th edition of the Daily Siam Podcast, 60 Second Science. All of which means that story two about athletes getting a performance boost from HGH is totally bogus. Because what is true is that a recent study found that athletes who took a placebo but who thought it was HGH did improve. While another recent study showed that while HGH did increase lean body mass, it did not improve performance. Unless, apparently, you believe that it does. For more, check out the July 24th article on our website entitled, Are a Popular Doping Drugs Effects All in the Mind? Well, that's it for this edition of the Weekly Siam Podcast. Visit Siam.com for the latest science news and for our special package on the total solar eclipse taking place on August 1st. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Oh.